All right, the silencers, that Scottish rain uh, from uh, Greenpeace, Rainbow Warriors was the name of that CD. So, anyway, all right, this is Mike, uh, Vincent Bridges, in just a few minutes. So, this story here is something that I'd like to read before we bring Vincent on the air. And I imagine that uh, uh, he may have a comment or two on it, and we may end up talking about some of the stuff that is relevant to this story here. But it comes from, uh, I'm not sure, actually, redice.net. And this is my friend, uh, Henrique, who is also a wonderful musician. And he is a proprietor of a a website, redice.net, R-E-D-I-C-E.net. And I've also played some music from, uh, from Henrique on the show. He has a musical project that he calls Leek, L-E-E-Q. Uh, so check that out if you get a chance. He's a really talented guy. But anyway, this story is called The Dawn of Aquarius. And I'm going to read just a uh, little segment out of that here, okay? It starts with a quote, and it says, Aquarius will be the new age, the new life. First there will, first there will be disastrous events, gigantic upheavals, turmoil, and change of all kinds. And that was from Omran Mikhail Alenhoff, uh, a philosopher who died in 1986. But uh, The article says, The transition to a new zodiacal age is altering the political map of the world. For the last 2,000 years, much of human history has been determined by events in Europe and the near Middle East, from Greece and Rome, the great power centers of two millennia ago, with their inheritance from ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, a distinct civilizational impulse spread westward into Europe, eventually reaching North America. Decisions made in the grand capitals of Europe and for much of the last century in New York and Washington have impacted the lives of millions and millions of people on every part of the planet. The advent of the age of Aquarius coincides with the emergence of new world power centers, Just as old Egypt, Babylon, and Sumeria were eclipsed by Greece and Rome, so too the old world of Western Europe and North America will be overtaken by new geopolitical alliances and fresh centers of global influence. And this will be accompanied by a dramatic change in consciousness as worn-out Western values and Eurocentric rationalist thought prevailing for the last few centuries surrender to new Aquarian thinking. The current turmoil and conflict unleashed on the planet by the U.S. and Britain is only the beginning of the climax of a struggle between cosmic influences of which most people are completely unaware. Today, America and Britain embody atrophied and degraded materialism. Piscean energies, the Anglo-Americans, as the standard bearers of bankrupt Western materialism, are trying to reorganize the world, imposing their imbalanced, egoistic approach to life on all societies. Yet the latest brutal and insane actions witnessed in the tragic invasion of Iraq are part of a frantic effort to prolong the collapsing system. Despite all the apparent power and wealth, Anglo-American universalism is in a state of rapid decline, leading to death. A new era, a new consciousness, and a new people are on the horizon as the planet goes through a turbulent transitional period, paving the way to the Aquarian Age. Hmm. All right, so that story goes on, but I think I've read enough of it. And uh, agree or disagree as you may, uh, this will be uh, at least tangentially a part of the conversation tonight. 
with my guest Vincent Bridges. And we'll be back with Vince in uh, in just a few minutes. Top of the hour. In the meantime, we'll hear one more song. Back in just a minute with uh, my guest, Vincent Bridges. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Vincent right when we come back. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. I think this is a good way to start the show. This is a song called The Morning of the Magicians. It's by the Flaming Lips from Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots.
Flaming Lips, and that's the Morning of the Magicians, and a fitting way to uh, to begin the interview with my guest tonight. His name is Vincent Bridges, and uh, he is a co-author uh, with Jay Widener to a book called Monument to the End of Time, Alchemy, Falconelli, and the Great Cross. Uh, you've heard me talk about that particular book on the program before. Uh, Vincent has written many other uh, pieces, much of which is published on the web. He has uh, some of his work is represented in lots of different websites around the web, including uh, sangral.com. His own website is Vincent Bridges, V I N C E N T B R I D G E S, VincentBridges.com. Uh, he is uh, uh, an expert in the lost and ancient science of alchemy, among other things. He's a pioneer. In the field of psychoacoustic therapy, he uh, is a political activist. He's a world traveler. He runs uh, an operation called Magical Mystical Tours that we may talk with him a little bit about tonight. He has translated the I Ching, the amazing uh, ancient Chinese book of divination. And he is a, a scholar on ancient Egyptian history as well and uh, some related ideas to that. So uh, without further ado... Vincent Bridges, welcome to Radio Orbit. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Uh, good evening, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. How are you? Oh, pretty good. All right. Well, uh, uh, here we are. I um, I was uh, sort of briefly paging through Monument uh, a couple of days ago in preparation for this interview, and uh, I saw the reference to Morning of the Magicians, uh, which, of course, is an amazing book. Uh, for those who haven't read it, written by uh, uh, Louis Powell's and uh, Jacques Bergier back in what was it, 59 or 60, something like that. But anyway, and I found that song from the lips, and I thought, okay, that's a great way to introduce Vincent. So, well, that's the book that started the new age, literally. Yep. Um, it's the first book that also mentioned Fulcanelli in a sort of mysterious and, and mass market sort of way. So yeah, that was a very appropriate song. Very All right. Good. <laughs> well, uh, maybe that's. Uh, uh, maybe that's a place that we'll, that we'll start. I tell you what, why don't we first uh, do a little bit of background, tell some, uh, tell the audience uh, what makes Vincent Bridges who he is, a little bit about your background maybe and how you got involved in this stuff to begin with, and uh, and then we'll just uh, we'll move on from there. But let's uh, let's get a little bit familiar first and let people know what you're about. So, Well, I'm probably the original independent scholar. Um, <laughs> went to two universities, no degrees, stuck. Then I moved off into what I now sort of reflecting back, called Anthropology of the Weird. 
and uh, basically, I wanted to know all those things that nobody seemed to be interested in in school. Mm. From what really is this Holy Grail thing about? To uh, do people really call up angels and demons? To you know, can you actually read minds and move things around? And, mm. So uh, it led me on quite a quest. Uh, I, I must say, it's been a whole different direction. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've been writing the whole time as a freelance writer all the way from doing rock and roll reviews back in the early 70s through a little science fiction, pretty much anything that would pay the bills. Right. And um, in the last few years, uh, probably the last eight years or so, Fulcanelli has sort of become, uh, how should we say, a visitor in my home in an astral sense. Uh, sort of uh, moved in and, and won't go away. <laughs> well, it's it, it's it's amazing that uh, that prior to... Uh, prior to your book, there was there were, there were virtually no references to this character Falconelli, who we'll talk about further as we get going here. But there were virtually very few references to Falconelli in uh, in the historical literature and on the internet. Uh, but now I'm sure that there's uh, there's quite a few, I imagine. Well, actually, there's tens of thousands. Uh, the first time we looked it up back in 1997, there were two hits: Falconelli Pepper Sauce and Frank Zappa's song. Who the bleep is Fulcanelli? Right, right, exactly. And um, there was one reference for the little town of Hinday that told us that Hitler had stopped there in October 1940 and that uh, the Tour de France came through there that year. Interesting. And uh, now there's tens of thousands of hits on Fulcanelli and almost that many on Hinday with the cross is. Hmm. You can actually find pictures of the cross uh, in tourist uh, websites now advertising uh, Hinday. So I think that's... That's kind of a step up on a strange level. But. Yeah, no question, no question about it. Uh, considering the fact that, as you say, just a few short years ago, nobody even was uh, was even cognizant of these uh, of these ideas in this guy. So. That's right. When, when uh, Jay first introduced me to the idea, um, like I said, I'm sort of a freelance anthropologist of the weird, mm -hmm. and um, my specialty is hermeticism and esoteric studies, basically the history of. Oh, these strange little secret societies and intellectual currents that have been running around Europe and the world and so forth. And uh, Jay had stumbled onto Fulcanelli a few years earlier and uh, was kind of at a loss to, on a certain level of, well, I really don't quite understand it, was his words. And uh, we collaborated quite nicely. We, we, we clicked his level of understanding and what he had worked out and the sort of odd resources I brought to it produced sort of a... a a critical reaction, you might say, and within a very short period of time, we had solved some of the major puzzles. Mm -hmm. And once we began to like crack that major, oh, oh. what is this really about? Uh, the implications just went everywhere. It just spread uh, in, into amazing little nooks and crannies of of knowledge. It really not just with bringing Fulcanelli onto the world stage or whatever, but it, it has produced, strangely enough, and particularly in the last few years a shift in the way people understand alchemy. Hmm. And um, that's quite an accomplishment, I think. No doubt. Uh, you know, we have, uh, we have this idea, at least in Western culture and Western society, and if, if, if I'm like most of the other people out there, I was brought up uh, through a school system that basically uh, didn't really spend much time on alchemy at all. It was sort of just this little uh, side note that, was mentioned that was a bunch of madmen uh, in their basements uh, stoned on mercury vapors uh, trying to turn 
led into gold, but... And they uh, accidentally came up with chemistry along the way. That's yeah, the way it's phrased. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, uh, but it turns out that uh, upon further inspection, that was a, uh, an oversimplification, to, uh, to say the least. And, and it turns out that there was a tremendous body of work uh, written about alchemy. And, uh, and in fact, uh, the preeminent intellectuals of the time were the people that were involved in this particular science. Uh, so maybe we could talk a little bit about that, uh, Vincent, and we can, uh, and then and then and then sneak towards Fulcanelli, and we'll talk a little bit about him. Well, you're quite right. Um, since alchemy is sort of the youngest of the esoteric sciences, because it emerged in Alexandria around the first century A.D. as part of the Gnostic movement. Mm. Hermeticism and Gnosticism are related ideas. Gnosticism is a more broad spiritual current that sees humanity and consciousness as shattered pieces of light seeking to return to one big light. Mm. And Hermeticism is more focused on the teachings of Thoth or Tuhute in, in the Egyptian, the great god of wisdom, in the sense, again, in a, in a more specific practical sacred science sense than Gnosticism. But the two emerged at the same time and have been profoundly influential in, in Western civilization pretty much since then. Alchemy emerged at the same time and out of the same roots. And for years, because of, um, I don't know, in our modern world, we've looking, in looking back on it, it's sort of like, well, this didn't work. Obviously, you can't do this literally. And so we really don't want to take the time to see what they might have meant. Hmm. And it sort of got written off. But for 2,000 years, the, the finest minds of, of generations have experimented with and, and used this sort of, for want of a better word, this ideal language, this thought language uh, that, that we think of roughly now as, as alchemy. Alchemy is really more a way to see the world and to see certain subtle patterns in the world um, than it is, you know, what's the secret to eternal life or how do I turn everything I touch into gold? Although those myths are, are very prominent in keeping the idea going and, and, and keeping people, you know, interested. Hmm. Sort of like that's the cover story that, that keeps the good part alive. Uh, it's almost a misdirection of sorts as well. Partly. But it can, if you understand what the metaphors mean, it can lead in the right direction. Hmm. Alchemy is, is an initiatory science. We, According to, all the way back to Isis the Prophetess, one of the earliest actual alchemical texts, it's something that you have to first experience have to be initiated into, so to speak, hmm. before you can demonstrate it by doing whatever transmutation it is that you're attempting. The biggest transmutation of all, the most important secret of alchemy, is that time itself changes, and that all of our sacred science, all of our innate humanness depends on being in phase, synchronized with these great cosmological changes. That's what all the great myths are about, and that's essentially the secret of alchemy, is knowing what time is coming, what time is about, in a certain sense. Hmm. Interesting. So the, so the whole idea of, of, uh, of changing metal into gold and this sort of thing is more of, is, uh, again, is, is not the primary focus of what was intended. Uh, well, actually, you can look at it as a byproduct. Hmm. Um, it, from the extensive research... You mentioned Monument to the End of Time. That was the first version of the book. Uh, the latest version is called The Mysteries of the Great Cross at Hinde, right, right. Alchemy and the End of Time, uh, from Destiny Books. 
What happened was was that the monument is somewhat simple, and I I didn't really put in footnotes and cite sources as precisely as perhaps the Oxford University Press crowd would have liked. Um, But when Destiny uh, Books, Inner Tradition, picked it up, um, I was assigned an editor that held my feet to the fire, and I had to go back and footnote everything within an inch of its life. And in doing that and in trying to explain it to someone who was how should we say, on the other side of the fence. (laughs) It enriched the text. It brought a lot of details and, well, this connects to this and this connects to this, Mm. to the point that um, with the new version Mysteries, um, even though we've had, though, probably two dozen reviews, been mentioned in several other books, no one has yet picked a hole in our basic thesis. Mm. And the basic thesis, to to put it very very, very simply, is that the transmutation is a byproduct of the understanding Hmm. and that the transmutation happens more quickly and perhaps more profoundly at certain times than it does at other times. Well, uh, and let me address that real fast or or, or ask you a question about that. There there seems to be in in Western rationalist uh, materialist science this idea of what is called uh, return to initial conditions. And the idea is that in science you can actually perform an experiment uh, and, and time not be a factor. In other words, my, my opinion is that there's no such animal. In other words, you can never return to initial conditions uh, in, in any scientific experiment simply because of what you state, is that time is different and that... And that uh, the universe is never the same from one moment to the next. And so that return to initial conditions can never actually really uh, happen. Well, that's exactly right. If you think of time simply as a very objective, quantifiable tick of the atoms out of a nucleus sort of you know, way to count incremental linear passage, then yes, you, you, you can set that sort of quality to initial conditions. But time actually is a very complex substance. The ancients thought of it literally as an energy. Hmm. And if you think of it as an energy, there, there's some good reasons why it is a one-way arrow that, that we're going toward the future. You know, that's a deeper philosophical issue. Basically, though, original conditions really can never happen in the sense that the sky is always changing. Hmm. Everything is moving, and you may return to a similar point in time. But there's always going to be a little bit of difference in you know, the phase of the moon or where Mars is and so forth. Right. The ancients understood that every moment of time has its quality and that qualities of time can be mapped out over a huge period of time, like the Mayans did. Mm-hmm. All they were really doing was looking for a way to quantify by the movement of the stellar objects they could observe, Venus, Mars, moon cycles, processional cycles. They were looking for ways to quantify and interlock these larger cycles. A similar thing seems to have happened in the West as the ancient mystery traditions in Egypt and and the East sort of tore themselves apart 2,000 years ago. The mystery schools fell apart. This information went underground in certain almost disreputable at time currents. And it's only in our modern information-rich era that we can pick and choose and look back over this 2,000-year period 
and reconstruct the similar perspective that we've had traditionally in the West. Hmm. When we do that, we start to see that there's an amazing congruence. There's an amazing coincidental alignment of events and timings. What that seems to be about is the fact that there are cosmological events, our angularity to galactic center being one important marker, mm-hmm. that are so huge and so prominent within any mythology that you may project out onto astronomy that you're going to mark that as important. You're going to mark when this happens as a significant time period. Right. And we find in traditions all around the planet that they mark this time period because of these cosmological markers particularly important. And in the West, this tradition masqueraded under the heading in a lot of traditions as alchemy. When we say that Nostradamus was an alchemist, we're not really saying that Nostradamus turned lead into gold, but his traditional um, role, his contemporaries thought of him as an alchemist because of his understanding of time. And, And that gives us a clue that it wasn't such a secret within the broader initiated circuits, you know, that, that people did understand that to be a magician, to be a theurgist, to be an alchemist, had that understanding of time. Hmm. Interesting, because uh, uh, even though it's different contextually, uh, nuclear physics and, 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 the, and the discovery of the secrets of the atom are no less alchemical than these ideas too though exactly and we can think of what's so significant about turning lead into gold just uh, crank up the reactor and, and you can do it very easy right sure you just uh, got to move some electrons around That's right. just, it costs you a lot of money that's a lot of energy and it's right. not worth it but right. yeah it's easy to do <laughs> we could think of that as, as the negative side of alchemy that, that that's almost a black alchemy hmm. Because what you're doing is you're taking it down to a very material level. Mm. And the ability to change lead into gold at that level produces no benefit. In other words, it's not keyed into the transformation of self, or more important, the transformation of time. One of the curious little lacunae um, of of all this is the fact that they may literally have been uh, an agent, for want of a better word, a philosopher's stone, it may have actually been a piece of a meteorite that could literally facilitate the transmutation of baser metals, leads, and bronze, and so forth, into silver and gold. I say this because there's a persistent trace of historical records of people being able to do it mm-hmm. at very unusual times. And that's sort of a side thread to the whole thing, is that there may literally be a more direct physical explanation but because of the meteorite content, we may be looking at something that, again, was around from the last time there was a great catastrophe, maybe from the last time a galactic superwave swept mm-hmm. through from, from the galactic center, right. the last time that there was this sort of angular uh, alignment. So, so it all, it's all interconnected, even in the traditional alchemical fashion of the Philosopher's Stone, and the literal, very special prima materia that that may be. Okay. And so so that might explain, for example, why the alchemist would perform the same experiment over and over and over. In other words, he was waiting for those particular conditions to arise. 
in in order for his in, in other words he recognized that the experiment itself wasn't really uh, uh, an exclusive thing that he needed conditions outside of that in order for it to be successful. Exactly, and sometimes those outside conditions were not known right, right. to the lower-level alchemist who just had a vague understanding right. of the subject. Right, if an asteroid's flying by, how does he know that? Right. It's at, a, it's at a deeper level. When you think of what's the alignment between your interpersonal self, the world around you, and perhaps certain specific stars rising over the horizon, mm-hmm. And the ability to charge that energy in dirt, take that dirt, use it as your primary material. Right. And so consciousness becomes a part of the whole thing, too, apparently. A very, very important part. It's never been separated. But we do find, particularly in some very unusual um, Hebraic manuscripts from around the time of the First Crusade, we find the whole idea of this constellation charging the earth being the very secret of Solomon and the very secret of all of his gold, alchemical transformations, etc. Some of these manuscripts may have in fact been what the Templars discovered um, when they took over the, uh, the underground caverns beneath the Temple Mount. Some sort of object, perhaps even a piece of the stone that I was talking about or some sort of diagrams along with these texts, Mm -hmm. might have been just enough um, for the smart guys in Europe in in the uh, 12th century to recreate the science. Mm -hmm. We do have a few fairly well-attested transmutations in the late 12th and 13th century. And then again, it fades until the uh, 15th and 16th century. So, So there are patterns. They're very interesting patterns that you can discern and go, oh, well, something's happening. Well, it it almost seems like so. In other words, it's a discovery of of knowledge lost, as opposed to new knowledge being learn, uh, being developed. To a certain degree, yes. Um, the new knowledge comes from how do we apply what our very radical idea, our very radical Western idea, the scientific method. How do we apply that to a sacred science that is not necessarily based on uniformity and, and being able to replicate experiences. Right. Because, again, it's a time and timing. Your inner alignment with the alignment of the stars and the place where you are on Earth and so forth may be exactly right once in a lifetime right. and not replicatable on, on a day-to-day basis. So, so the challenge comes in, and how do we fit what we think of as science, which has given us great wonders, and as I said, the easiness of the black alchemy of Oh, let's just quickly and expensively do this, as opposed to the greater sort of tradition of time and timing and human development that's involved with the sort of, for want of a better word, mastery of the material condition. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I tell you what, uh, Vincent, that's a good good chance for us to take a little break here. Okay. All righty. Uh, let's do that. We'll come back. My guest is uh, Vincent Bridges. Uh, he is uh, co-author of. Monument to the End of Time, uh, as well as uh, the most recent incarnation uh, of that book, which is called uh, uh, The Mysteries of the Great Cross of Undai, Alchemy and the End of Time, again, uh, co-authored with Jay Widener. And you can check out all this stuff uh, at vincentbridges.com, V-I-N-C-E-N-T-B-R-I-D-G-E-S.com, vincentbridges.com, just the way it sounds. 
And if you go to RadioOrbit.com, you can uh, link right over to Vincent's uh, site from mine. In the meantime, uh, we'll play a little bit more music, and we will come back again with my guest one more time, Vincent Bridges. And uh, that website, one more time, VincentBridges.com. All right, talking about alchemy, uh, Fulcanelli, time. I'm sure we'll talk about uh, the cross at Undi a little bit. Uh, there's a significant cosmological uh, and astronomical uh, formation and alignment that apparently is happening uh, uh, tonight and, uh, and into the future for the next week or two. And we'll talk to Vincent more about that. Uh, but anyway, lots to come. So we got another hour and a half with Vincent Bridges. We'll be back in a few more minutes. Uh, this is Mike, Radio Orbit. And what are we going to listen to here? This is, uh, ah, for my, for my German listeners uh, listening on the web, this is Ein bisschen Herbert Grünemeyer von, uh, von Ö, and dieses heißt Komet. Einen Moment, back in a minute, Radio Orbit. Oh, my God. 
All right, so uh, my guest is Vincent Bridges, and uh, we're talking about alchemy and uh, some of the related topics. He has a book. Uh, the most recent uh, version of the book uh, is called The Mysteries of the Great Cross of Hende, or Undai, Alchemy and the End of Time. And, and uh, Vincent, we were, we were talking before the break there about time and the fact that these uh, these these people that were interested in alchemy uh, in the uh, Renaissance times and uh, and in the, uh, the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries when the when the cathedrals were being built and then again <clears throat> in the uh, 14, 15, 1600s, 1700s, we have people like uh, Sir Isaac Newton that we now know was deeply involved with alchemy. Uh, Giordano Bruno, Victor Hugo, of course, this guy Fulcanelli, who is just an uh, just an amazing, amazing person. All of these uh, tremendously intellectually uh, advanced and knowledgeable humans uh, interested in this stuff, and also time. So, what's what's the big uh, what's the kicker? Why are they so interested in this? It it turns out that it wasn't just about getting rich. It's not about uh, turning metals into gold, although that uh, may become sort of a sidebar, but it's not necessary. So, so, so where do we go from here? Well, if you knew when the next great catastrophe was coming, if you knew when the next great shift in human consciousness was coming, and you had, oh, 500 years, say, to prepare, what do you think you and a group of initiates that understood what you understood what do you think you would do in light of that knowledge? Hmm. Prepare, I suppose. Prepare, pretty much like the Mayans did, some record, some knowledge, some note of the information so that would perhaps survive. Hmm. If you look at what happened in the late 12th, early 13th century with the cathedrals, out of nowhere, suddenly, all across Europe, but mostly in France, 
within perhaps a 50-year period, over a 100 major cathedrals sprung up, including Chartres, which was finished in an amazing 26-year period. That requires not just an enormous amount of money and effort, but organization, and most important of all, some almost desperate drive, some looming apocalyptic catastrophic deadline. Now, strangely enough, and this is a sideline of the things that, that we sort of discovered along the way in search of Fulcanelli, is that there is a tradition and that there was a reason why the cathedrals were built at that time and with that degree of intensity. Really? And it was because it was discovered. There's several indicators, one of which is the Feast of the Epiphany actually crossing the astrological point of the winter solstice. That happened in the same time period. The more important indicator of something that, that was sort of brewing beneath the surface happened in the fall of 1177. What happened was, in the Muslim calendar, in the Islamic calendar, the holy month of Ramadan moves. It's a lunar calendar, and it moves twice around the year in uh, 65 years. Right, right, right. So it, it, it's fluid. And there's a tradition in the Islamic world, going all the way back to the Shias, the family of the Prophet, very connected to all of this cosmological stuff in the Islamic current, and alchemy. There's a tradition that a Ramadan in which there is a lunar and a solar eclipse is a symbol that the Mahdi or the Illuminated One is about to appear. Well, this happened, it happens relatively often, but it happened in the fall of 1177, and what made it so astounding is that the Hebrew calendar, Rosh Hashanah, and then the Feast of Sukkoth, also aligned with the beginning of Ramadan and the lunar and solar eclipse. Wow. And this was one of those moments that had been described for perhaps 30 years ahead of time by a very mysterious person called Elijah the Prophet. And Elijah was also the source of what would become the Bahir and the very basic, for want of a better word, magical or practical Kabbalah that became the basis of our Western tradition. Right, right. And, of course, this is the time period when the legends about the Holy Grail appeared and the Cathars first became very prominent. Mm. So this is a, a very unusual time period. And this is what triggered this, this awareness of this time period and, and the 20 years or so around it in which um, the winter solstice point would cause the Feast of Epiphany. What seemed to be happening, and, and we have reflections of this in medieval prophets like Joachim of Flores, is that the idea that within a few hundred years things were going to be vastly different, and that the next time some of these alignments occurred in slightly different places, but the basic alignments, that would be the end of the world. That would be the beginning of the seventh millennium. That would begin, um, you know, the, the day of judgment and so forth. Okay. And so the, and the, and they, they were rushing to get the cathedrals in place and to get this sort of monument, this sort of understanding um, in a form that just couldn't be destroyed. And so that's why they called them books of stone, in other words. That's right. And, you know, and, and we should spend a minute on this again, on, on just the, the magnitude of, of, the, uh, of the undertaking. For people who aren't familiar with, with the Gothic cathedrals of Europe, I mean, they are no less astounding than, uh, than the Great Pyramid of Egypt in many ways, I think. I mean, there, there are still many, many questions about how they were actually built and designed. 
Well, usually you would have in Egypt um, a great pharaonic society focused on one or two large projects. In Europe, between 1143 and 1250, that hundred year or so period, you had over 200 major cathedrals built from England all the way to Yugoslavia, from Germany to, to Sicily. And most of them, 90% of them, are dedicated to Our Lady. Right. And Our Lady at that level was, perhaps it was Mary, perhaps it was Mary Magdalene, perhaps it was just the mother goddess, since most of them were built over goddess temples and very sacred, holy goddess sites. Right, historical sites that, that, that preceded these buildings. That's right, and some of them were in use, some of them had been in use for a while and were rebuilt and rededicated. But the common theme was an amazing and astounding form of architecture that instead of being dark, sort of meditative places like the Romanesque cathedrals, were suddenly filled with light. Mm. And part of this filled with light was the ability to raise the roof and open up the walls and still retain the support. Part of it was the alignment. And the alignment, strangely enough, matches the traditional alignment of all the Egyptian temples, particularly the temple at Luxor. Interesting. Karnak, which is that you have mid-summer sunset, mid-winter sunrise along the same axis. Okay. And the church is aligned that way. So that at the high point of the year, mid-summer, the western window, the great rose window of Notre Dame de Paris, is full light down the nave of the church. Mm. So that all of these cathedrals, all of them, were built as these complex, transformative engines, as these literal talismans for the philosopher's stone, that anyone, nobleman, peasant, anyone, could enter in on the right days and with the right expectations, ritual, whatever you wanted to call it, experience the magic. Hmm. And this was the great, uh, I don't know, the great accomplishment of the, of the Middle Ages, the great accomplishment of this 12th and 13th century period that because times changed and because things sort of taste changed they really got downplayed and undervalued and again in the French Revolution in particular much of this was destroyed the small group in the 19th century the mid 19th century that began the restoration includes the people that would eventually become full Canelli or shall we say the current that would eventually become full Canelli. Okay. And what they seem to have dis- rediscovered once again as they went through and rebuilt and redecorated the cathedrals is that there is this very prominent connection between, again, the Kabbalah, the tree of life pattern, the emanations of God that creates our reality, and the structure, pattern, resonance, etc., of these great cathedrals. Right. Now, out of this came our, our, our Fulcanelli figure. Fulcanelli is the most amazing figure of the 20th century in terms of esotericism or uh, occultism. Vincent, give us an idea of his, uh, of his time frame. Well, the first book bearing his name came out in 1926. Now, 1926 was a, a very interesting year. Stalin rose to power. Uh, the first science fiction magazine was pub- published. Ernest Hemingway published The Sun Also Rises. So it was a very formative and and, and fermenting sort of year. So again, one of these time frames that we've been talking about. Exactly, one of these very well-chosen moments. And it really became a hit among the Paris underground, even though 
was only printed in 300 volumes, and as late as a decade later, not all of them had sold out. And the second book came out in 1929, The Dwellings of the Philosophers. Okay. And between these two books, there was sort of like an underground sensation in the Paris demi-mondaine underworld of, of alchemists and occultists and crazy people and weirdos. <laughs> and they really didn't reach any sort of greater prominence. They, they were part of the subculture of the time. Mm. They didn't really reach any greater prominence until after World War II when Eugene Cancellet, who mm. claimed to be Fulconelli's student, right. reprinted them. And this is where the story takes a very unusual turn because in reprinting the first book, The Mystery of the Cathedrals, Cancellet included the chapter on the cross at Undai or Hyundai. So, uh, hey, Vincent, let me jump in real fast and ask sure. you a question. Because um, <clears throat> this was an unresolved question in my own head. Uh, was the original book did come out, and, and this is the mystery of the cathedrals that we're talking about, right? Right. Uh, came out in, in the mid-1920s, and then when this uh, revised edition came out, it had this additional chapter uh, which talks about this cross uh, at Hyundai. My question that maybe you can answer uh, was, and, and I think you already answered it, was who was responsible for the, for the publishing of that second edition? Uh, was it Canzialet who, who was behind that? Yes, Canzialet is responsible for publishing the second edition. Okay. But the point of where did the Hyundai chapter come from? Right, right, There's right. a lot of space in both monument and mysteries. And it, the point being is that the internal textual evidence um, within uh, the Hyundai chapter points to it being written at about the same time that Mysteries came out. Uh, again, you've been to Undai and, and mm -hmm. you've been to the beach and, mm -hmm. and all that. All of that really did not exist in any shape, form, or fashion before about 1923. Okay. So Fulconelli says that, oh, it's just the rich beach houses and there's nothing of importance. And he mentions the trees. Mm -hmm. The trees were cut down in 1938. So that we know whenever the visit that he's describing took place between 1923 and 1938. Right. So we can go, okay, this has to have been written at the same time period that Mysteries came out. Right. It certainly wasn't written in 1956 right. or anything like right. that. Right. Because by, by then, everything had changed. Right. So, so we, have, we can pinpoint the time. So why wasn't it included in the first edition hmm. of Mysteries? Right. The answer to that, if it had been included, the mystery of who is Fulconelli and where this information is coming from would have been revealed. Hmm. Now, the clue to that is if even today, if you go and, and persist long enough and, and get the chief sextant of St. Vincent's Church, he will tell you and show you in the little record book the only information they have about the cross, which is that the Diabidae family, the large family in the neighborhood, paid to have it moved from the churchyard, from the uh, graveyard, to in front of the church in 1848. Right, right, right. Now, if you start tracing the Abaday family, you discover that their great Gothic mansion, which is just a few kilometers up the road from the little village of Hyundai, from the cross, is a, a miniature Gothic chateau designed by Eugene Violet Leduc. Is that right? The same fellow who redesigned Notre Dame. Notre Dame, de, yeah, yeah. And yeah. as you begin to look into Abaday, you discover that great swath of Dwellings of the Cathedral, Fulconelli's supposedly second book, are lifted intact from uh, Antoine de Abadé's works. And he was a very famous scientist. He died in 1898. So he's not really contemporary with when the book came out. 
but both Cancelet and another part of the co-conspirators, a fellow by the name of Pierre de Joule, and the fellow that at least at that time point sort of took credit for being uh, Fulcanelli, Jean-Julien Champagne. Champagne, yeah. All three of them had connections to the Abaday and the circle around the Abaday. So it seems that Antoine de Abaday of Hinde, the man whose family was responsible for making the cross so prominent, is also the source for a great deal of the information that would later turn up under Fulcanelli's name. Very interesting. So whether that's the original Fulcanelli or not, that, that's the connection. Hmm. So apparently if that last chapter about the Hinde cross had been included in 1926, when the de Abaday family was one of the most prominent families, uh, a cousin by the name of Harry de Abaday was a friend of Ernest Hemingway's, was a friend with Max Ernst, Anton Breton, and the Surrealist. So if that sort of information had been made public, it would have been very easy to go, oh, okay, this must be who you're talking about. Right, right, so right. it was suppressed, and again, Cancelet decided to put it in the second edition in the 50s. The reason for that is that things had changed so radically by the 50s that not only would no one recognize the de Abadays, but what would have been sort of overlooked in the 20s, and, and oh, that's kind of curious, had by the mid-50s become very pertinent. I see. And that is the end of the world. Okay? After the atomic bomb, after the end of World War II, it suddenly became really more likely what Fulcanelli had to say, his interpretation of what the cross said, hmm. could really be true. And wow. that the world was going to sort of destroy itself, and that science and, and the hieroglyphic symbol of Saturn with its scythe and death and all this was going to really come true. Wow. And it, you mentioned Mornings of the, of the Magicians. That's where that sort of level about Fulcanelli entered the mass consciousness. I see. Because in that book, they describe a meeting that Berger supposedly had with someone claiming to be Fulcanelli, right. who was talking about the dangers of atomic energy. That's exactly right. Yeah. So all of this was blending together, and we really don't know whether that was really Fulcanelli or not. Right. We do know that Fulcanelli didn't die or disappear, that he was on the scene possibly as late as the early 50s. Cancelet records a very strange encounter, and it may have been at that encounter that Fulcanelli himself looking years younger than the last time Cancel I saw him, mm -hmm. I actually said, publish this now. Now's the time to get this information out. Amazing. And there may be other connections to uh, some of our larger mysteries. In other words, what was you know, Hitler doing in Hinde in October 1940? Right, right. It yeah. leads in lots of directions. Right, all kinds of different questions. And in fact, uh, historically back, that was a place where uh, King Louis, I know, spent some time, the Sun King, uh, uh, was Louis the Fourteenth. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, that's where he was married to the Infata, and uh, they were actually married uh, in, in a tiny little chapel that's dedicated to one of the most radical and totally improbable saints in the whole Catholic canon, um, Saint John de Lutz or Saint John of the Light. Saint John of the Light, right? He is also known locally as Saint John de Roche or Saint John of the Rock. And the tradition is, again, if you go and pester them long enough, they'll tell you all about it, <laughs> is that St. John de Woods is a Basque mythological figure, hmm. someone who was lord of, of the sky in the Basque mythology who converted, converted to Christianity and then went to meditate in a cave somewhere under the Basque holy mountain, Larun, until 
when? Well, the end of time. So this is the church in which Louis XIV, the Sun King, who attempted to rebuild Versailles and Paris to make it into a model of the Isis in the sky, that's where he was married. Wow. So there's a connection. Again, Louis XIV remaking Paris or attempting to remake Paris with the Tuileries and, and uh, extending the mm. sight line between Notre Dame and the Louvre and so forth was an early portent of what our founding fathers, our, our, our Freemasonry of, of, of the, our founding fathers, tried to do with Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah, for people who are familiar with the, with the geometry that's uh, involved in the layout of the city, it's very interesting when you look at that, yeah. And that, you mentioned earlier that there's things going on at the moment. Well, that is exactly the connection to all of this that, that's happening at the moment. Well, I tell you what, that's a good little cliffhanger at the top of the hour here, okay? All right. Let's take another quick break. And let me mention one thing, actually, or, or, or make a comment, and you can maybe reply real, really quick. It just sort of hit me that, uh, well, first of all, for the, for, the, for the listeners, if you're not familiar, this place that we're talking about, this town of Hende, or Undai, is, is a, a little town in the south uh, southwestern corner of France, uh, just north of the Spanish border, and uh, on the on the uh, the Atlantic coast, and it's in the Basque, uh, what they call the Basque area of uh, of France and Spain, and it's an amazing place. But uh, but the 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 cross that Vincent is talking about uh, is in the the square of a church that that's called Saint Vincent's. Wow, that had to be quite a mind blower when you went there for the first time. Well, I. That sort of strange connection leads all the way across France as we started following some of these clues. Wow. Everywhere there was something significant, there was a St. Vincent's Church. Amazing. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back uh, with my guest, Vincent Bridges. And uh, maybe we can also talk a little bit about uh, another project of his. It's called Magical Mystery Tours, and that involves uh, uh, visiting some of these amazing places across uh, Europe and, and elsewhere. Uh, that we're talking about tonight. So, all right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. Amazing information from my guest tonight, uh, Vincent Bridges, a wonderful guest. And uh, uh, if you get deeply into his material, uh, it will be uh, astonishing. It's one of the only, one of the few words I can use for it. But uh, the stuff that that he's talking to us about tonight is the tip of the iceberg. And you know, you can only get in so much in in a couple hours. And uh, anyway, we appreciate all the time that Vincent is spending with us tonight, and I bring this stuff to you guys to try to help you uh, do your own bit of navigating through this very complex and interesting future uh, that we seem to be uh, entering into here. So back in a few minutes, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and this is uh, Tori Amos from Boys for Pele. The song is called Putting the Damage On. We'll be back in a minute with Vincent Bridges on Radio Orbit.
voice of Tori Amos putting the damage on from Boys from Pele I love it alright uh, this is Mike Hagen you're listening to Radio Orb and let's get right back to my guest Vincent Bridges and you can check him out and his uh, uh, myriad uh, uh, labyrinth of information at vincentbridges.com and uh, spell it like it sounds alright it's an intelligence test as my friend Terrence used to say. Okay, uh, back to Vince. Uh, Vincent, you said that uh, there's something significant happening now, and we were sort of talking about that right towards uh, uh, the uh, the break there. And I know there was an eclipse uh, that I mentioned actually before you came on the air tonight, and it was visible in Europe and Africa and uh, and uh, areas in that part of the world. Is that uh, any part of this? What's what's going on in the skies above our heads? Oh yeah, that's that's a major part of it. Remember, I mentioned uh, that in 1177, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Ramadan, and the lunar, the solar lunar eclipse cycle aligned. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, 828 years later, just as the seers foresaw back then, it's happening right now. Is that right? In other words, tomorrow evening begins both Ramadan and Rosh Hashanah. And traditionally, of course, you, you don't count that until you see the, the first sliver of the moon after the new moon. But it is counted from that moment of the new moon. And again, the new moon had a yes, solar I eclipse. Wow. And um, again, two weeks later, on the full moon, we'll have a lunar eclipse. Is that right? So that's coming up in two weeks. That's right. And again, that's on the 13th day of Ramadan, or the great holy day in which... Um, Muhammad received the Quran, and of course it's also in this peculiar alignment that hasn't been seen since 1177. It's also the beginning of the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So these portents were seen all the way back in the 12th century as the alignments for the end of time, 
along with the, the other importance of the galactic angularity and what it meant in terms of where the equinoxes and the solstice fall. Hmm. And we're now in that time period that they foresaw then that they were, in fact, putting up the Gothic cathedrals as markers. Which, so again, cool. leads us in a very interesting way back to Louis the Fourteenth and his sort of miraculous production as king. It's a much longer story. And the mystical cabal that sort of ran things on a certain level and that encouraged him to create Paris as the city of Isis. Hmm. That didn't quite come to fruition. That, that's a longer story. But that whole tradition, that whole current, is what fueled the Freemasons in a broader sense that eventually would become the founding fathers of our country. And their basic idea, particularly George Washington and Pierre L'Enfant, who was an initiate of the Nine Sisters Lodge in Paris, to lay out the federal city, the District of Columbia, Mm -hmm. in such a way as to reflect the great goddess in the sky, Virgo, the great constellation Virgo, and to include within it a tree of life pattern, a five-pointed star, Mm -hmm. and these other very important mystical arrangements and alignments, all of which tend to line up and point to events that is happening just a couple of days from now on the 5th and the 6th of October. Wow. Now, what this is, if you're familiar with your Bible, Revelations chapter 12, verse 1, describes the woman clothed with the crown of stars, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. pregnant with the new Messiah, standing on on the crescent moon. Well, just two days after this very peculiar alignment of, of holy calendars, 828 years, we haven't seen anything like this, in the sky, we have, and this is sidereally, not uh, tropically, this, this is actually in the sky, not as, astrologically, we have the sun at the heart level of Virgo, and then at the belly of Virgo conjunct the star Spica, which Spica is the ear of wheat, it's the mystery itself, and it's one of the important stars on the ecliptic. Conjunct with that, we have Jupiter and Mercury, forming the, the trine, if you will, of the new awareness, the mm. new being, that is, pregnant in the woman clothes with stars. Right. And, of course, the brand-new moon will be under her feet, just in the edge of, of, of uh, Virgo uh, Libra. Now, what will happen, curiously enough, someone designed this, is that if you could see, of course, it would be in the middle of the day, so you have to have eyes to see it. Right. But if you were standing on the porch of the White House looking towards the Washington Monument, at noon on October 5th, the sun would be directly over the monument, and the alignment over the next 24 hours would reflect as it turns, as the earth turns to the next noon, would reflect the federal triangle formed by the Capitol, the Washington Monument, and the White House, will be containing the constellation Virgo that has this new child of morning. Hmm. Now, what seems all of this ties together is that the founding fathers, not just being interested in reviving Isis, created a new goddess that they called Columbia. And, of course, that's Columbia that, that's standing on the regulus or the king point on the top of the capital. That's the goddess statue that's on top of the capital, Columbia. And, again, this whole Colombian current, including the destruction of the space shuttle Columbia, right. is coming to fruition in a sort of almost magical, 
automatic way in the sky. You know, as it aligns between October fifth and October sixth. Amazing, Vincent. You realize I'm talking to you from Columbia, Missouri, right? Yes, I, I realize that. That's, that's quite an entertaining, uh, quite an entertaining synchronicity. Yeah, another 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 cosmic giggle. Yeah. So, if you think of what Revelation was describing, and you think of that particular verse as a glimpse of perhaps an alternate future, perhaps even a way out of the more horrendous parts of Revelation, mm. and that's one interpretation. That's a larger story within the. the the other stories, but if you think of that as, okay, there is a sign of hope, and apparently the iconography in the whole current of America and Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, mm-hmm. the place where Columbia is contained or dwells, if you, and, and again, it was all Mason, it was all decided by the Freemasons, right. because there were specific Masonic stone-laying ceremonies that were aligned at the White House the Washington Monument and the Capitol right. uh, to perfectly reflect the Virgo and the specific alignments that are happening now, yeah. including the head and tail of the dragon, which indicates the eclipse that was happening today. Wow. More interesting, perhaps, there's a new book uh, recently out by Baval and Hancock called The Talisman. Right, right, right. And uh, David Ovison has a very interesting book called The Secret Architecture of Our Nation's Capital. Hmm that covers all of this. Okay, okay. Sometime in the next week or so, there's a new website going up called thegoddesscolumbia.com that should have all the diagrams to show where it aligns in Washington and what's happening in the sky and so forth. But this is brand new information. No one has picked up on this. This hasn't been mentioned by anybody. Nobody's even commented upon it. Brand new, first time on your radio show tonight from... Columbia, Missouri. Amazing. So, what do you what do you make of it, Vincent? The tragedy that we're going through. Okay. Oh, I forgot to mention one important point. <laughs> <laughs> the Elijah the Prophet movement back in the 1170s. Okay, that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Right. That that the, when this happened 828 years ago, Elijah the Prophet said that the next time this happens at the beginning of the seventh millennium that it would be the seven years of the tribulation, and at the end of it, the gates of heaven and hell would open and close. And the gist of that is over the next seven years, the war in heaven, Hmm. the archangels and the archons of of disorder have access to our realm to slug it out. And um, there's a very specific time period that Isaac the Blind, who was a student to remove from Elijah the prophet, mentioned. And that's the time period between Rosh Hashanah, tomorrow afternoon, 2005, and Yom Kippur, 2012, which is 2,550 days. My God. And this time period, and again, there's all sorts of Kabbalah that you can do by breaking that up according to Revelations, a time, two times and a half. But what that points to is that we have the very specific time period in front of us sort of sprung on us unaware, if you will, that no one seems to have picked up on it ahead of time, that is the make-it-or-break-it point. In other words, if Columbia, if the goddess returns to balance out the three numbskull patriarchal religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam that are all aligning at this point, mm-hmm. then maybe we'll survive. Mm-hmm. But if not, it's going to be Nostradamus's 27-year of World War III, Great Crusade, final disaster, 
uh, not looking very good for the world wow. kind of scenario. So again, we're 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 right on this balance beam between paradise and Armageddon. Well, the next seven years leading up to the end point of Falconelli's season of destruction may literally be the deciding point. It's so obvious now, looking back from, from three years' perspective, that Falconelli's pinpointing the fall equinox of 2002 as the switching point, as the point in which everything changed for the worse. In other words, that you could really feel the momentum kick in is an accurate point. It is a real very precise location in time in which to mark when we did sort of take a slide to the dark side as a whole culture and things have just simply gotten worse the Iraq war tsunamis, earthquakes hurricanes, America for the first time since the Dust Bowl actually has refugees Mm, and everybody watched it on CNN an apocalyptic vision that was worthy of Nostradamus Mm. So faced with that, it's really hard to say that things are not getting worse. The sign of hope may really be that all of these timelines, all of these mythologies, all of these machinations of secret societies are converging. And nobody's really in control of what happens when that convergence occurs. That's an, the, I'm, I'm sorry to jump in, but the, sure. that's an interesting uh idea that you mentioned, this idea of lack of control, and I've, I have this conversation often uh, on the air and off about, uh, you know, there's, there, there's so much concern about the new world order and, as, as you mentioned, secret cabals and societies and brotherhoods of, of, of who knows who that are supposedly orchestrating events and pulling strings behind the scenes and somehow uh, actually in control of the destiny of this planet and 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 I usually argue that sure there there are I don't argue that there are those that seek control no question about it uh, with with different levels of of uh, of success but I I just cannot accept the fact that there is actually a group or an individual that actually is in control I I agree with you I, Control is a myth. It's just like setting it back to zero conditions. Mm. What we can do is sort of surf if we're lucky. And, and if you do know where the wave's breaking, if you do have timing you know, on the wave, mm. then that might give you an edge. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm. The idea of control is part of the darkness of the Iron Age itself. Oh. And as you're saying, our president, our society, our government wanting to control events even in the darker sense, and I do believe this, that they want to b- bring on the apocalypse. Yes. Bring on, bring it on. Right, right. Even in that sense of control, it, it's a myth. Hmm. They're not in charge of what's going to happen. I agree. No one is in charge of what's going to happen. But for, you know, a few thousand years, if you know what you're doing in terms of how to spot the, the periodicity of the sky, nothing's ever the same. But it always is coming around to the same point. Right, these cycles, yeah. Right, if you can see that, then you do have a, an understanding that, okay, maybe we need to, for instance, like the Gothic cathedrals, immortalize this stuff in a form that, no matter how many statues they bash out, no matter how many times they break the windows out, the pattern's going to be here. <laughs> you know, and it, maybe it's time we need to think about that. And we seem to be at that, that point again. If things go badly over the next seven years, and, and I'm sure anyone listening can think of at least a hundred different scenarios 
that could go really badly over the next seven years. Right, right, right. Then all of this will have been moved. But only a few things have to survive in order for there to be a dawn. You know, in other words, we don't have to think in terms of all or nothing. It's like, what can we make it through? Hmm. What can survive? Part of this is absorbing, oh, how should we say, not so much the myths of control or the cabals of the past, but the heroic points in the past where people like Fulconelli, who understood something, risk life or limb or, or risk misunderstanding or being laughed at or ridicule to actually say, no, look, you know, you really got to look at what's going on. Something is in the sky. Hmm. It's sort of like the mythological chicken little uh, turned into a, a very potent piece of philosophy. Hmm. It's not that the end of the world is coming, the end of the world is coming. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But change is coming. We're in the middle of it. Right. And if you're not aware of it, Probably just going to get kicked in the head. Gosh, no kidding. I mean, it, it, it's uh, it's getting uh, it's getting more and more sort of in your face, and it's funny because I sort of think of a sleeping person, uh, and uh, depending on how deep the sleep, you have to shake them harder, <laughs> you know, in order to wake them up. And, and we're past the quiet shake and, oh, get up, please. It's, it's kicking the butt time. Yeah, now it's, it seems like the, the shakes are getting more and more intense, uh, literally and metaphorically. And, and uh, When you look at, um, when Jay and I first stumbled onto this back in 1997, it was like we have five years, so like 2002. Five years, that's a long time and a very short time. Right. And then now we're on the other side. It's been three years since 2002. You know, I'll, more things are beginning, how should we say, to, to make sense. Mm. And as unfortunate as it is, I, I think we were right. <laughs> I think Fulcanelli was right. I think Dr. Paul LaViolette and his theory of, of the galactic superwave yeah. and, and the dust clouds that are pointing you, mm. I think all of that is right. And when you begin to look at solar flares, weather changes, Hurricane Katrina, you know, the, the, the craziness of our government, it builds up to a pattern, and that pattern matches some of the great seers, some of the great prophecies from Revelations to Nostradamus. Again, the core of it all, though, is the alchemy of change. Mm. And when you look at it from that point of view, it's like, okay, we're being challenged. Mm. But still, time moves on. Still, these signs of importance happen in the sky. Mm. And even though no one seems to be aware of them, well, if you you know, kind of look up and think about it if you happen to be in Washington over the October 5th, 6th, then maybe you'll get a glimmer. <laughs> maybe the right person will be touring the Washington Monument. Right, right. You know, we have no way of knowing from outside, but something is going on. And not in a control sense, mm. but in a, in, a, in a funny sense, in the same sense that synchronistically, if there is a control, they're jokers. Right. In the sense of, okay, here I am talking about Columbia for the first time anywhere on Columbia, Missouri radio station. If there's any degree of control, it, it, it's the joker. It's the, aha, uh-huh, look at this, pay attention. Right, right, right. It gets us to align these awarenesses, these ideas. And it's totally beyond anything that any individual can understand, even Fulcanelli, even the greatest sage. Hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, absolutely amazing, actually. Uh that that all this stuff is sort of coming to pass right now. And as you, wh- when did you, when did you sort of become aware, aware of these alignments that we're talking about that are coming into play right now, basically? 
um, in August, and um, it, it was a very curious thing because we had been tracking, we had been tracking some of the material about the Holy Grail in Provence and the Bahir and the Kabbalists and the Cathars for a documentary that a friend of mine is doing about the Holy Grail. And um, I, I've been putting together stuff and going a little bit deeper. And in looking for the very specific reason why the sudden eruption of, of cathedral building, I had speculated in mysteries about the epiphany crossing the solstice point. And said, well, that's definitely a, a marker, but it must have been something more dramatic. And, specific. Wow. and just simply in looking through it, I found a, ref- a reference to eclipses in Ramadan. And then I researched that and found the dates and said, oh, well, look at this. Then again, doing another search, I came up with Isaac the Blind's prophecy about the gates of heaven and hell and the end of 2,550 days. About the same time I wrapped that up, my good buddy Jeff Stray sent me his new book, Beyond 2012, (laughs) in which he has a little section from a strange guy named Andy Alphon, who I can't seem to track down somewhere in Texas, who Andy, although he missed it by a couple of days, he said it was today, reported the same idea without connecting it to the eclipses and Ramadan and so forth. But this fellow down in Texas who seems to be just existing on the web pointed out that it is indeed the the lady crowned with stars from Revelation formed in Virgo. And uh, that just happened in August. And synchronistically, um, I, I was not able to do anything with it. I wasn't able to write anything up about it. I wasn't able to get any word out from my understanding. And no one else seems to have picked up on it either. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's actually amazing. Since you and I have been in contact, one of the first things you told me was that you had you had, had a car uh, accident recently, and, right. it, and it sort of precluded you from doing a lot, doing any work really for a while. I know you hurt your hand, and uh, for a writer that had to be difficult, and certainly, especially with all this information coming out, it must be driving you nuts. Yeah, I had a. Fairly serious car accident. I, I shattered my left wrist in three places. And it was about eight weeks before I could type. Hmm. And for a information junkie, write-aholic, <laughs> uh, internet-aholic, eight weeks oh my a long God. time. Yeah, I can't even imagine. And it, it's just been in the last week or so that I've been able, actually, to type again. So, yes, physically precluded from spilling the beans, oh, the way I look at it. Well, I feel fortunate that, uh, that we're getting... Uh, Getting our our um, uh, our exclusive on it tonight, I guess, uh, and I'm very very pleased to be able to, to share it with you, and or that you're sharing it with me and with them with our with our audience, and we'll have this we'll have this show up on the web in 24 hours or so, and share it with a bunch of other people. So uh, yeah, and hopefully in the next 24 hours or so, we'll have the Goddess Columbia website up, GoddessColumbia.com, TheGoddessColumbia.com. Okay, well we'll we'll. And, uh, uh, it, it, by the time it happens, maybe it'll be all over the web. How about it? All right, let's. Let, I'm. I'm gonna. We're gonna make that happen. I think that's a great idea. The timing. Uh, I mean, this is all about timing, right? It's all about timing. All about timing. So we'll put this whole thing together. All right. Well, we got a half an hour left uh, uh, with Vincent and um, uh, the website. Uh, a couple of them actually. Let's mention them all. Vincent. Uh, VincentBridges.com, and uh, that's uh, Vincent's primary direct website. And uh, Vince, give out give out the uh, the new one one more time. TheGoddessColumbia.com okay. with either the www or without the www. It'll get there. Okay, TheGoddessColumbia.com. 
All right, well, look, uh, let's come back and we'll continue our conversation. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, uh, this idea of the turning of the ages, and uh, because it turns out that alchemy apparently is a metaphor for a lot of things, uh, but uh, transmutation sort of is a common thread, and not only metals into gold or uh, the transmutation of the human spirit, but also this changing of times and uh, it's represented in, in many of our of our ancient cultures as well. I know uh, uh, the uh, the Indian system in particular, the Kali's, uh, you've written extensively about. Yeah, and um, again, I, as I mentioned, it's the shift from the Iron Age to the Golden Age, and, and that kind of abrupt shift is is never comfortable. Alright, right, well that's what we're going to talk about when we come back. My guest is Vincent Bridges. One more time, vincentbridges.com <clears throat> and uh, uh, we'll keep things going with uh, with him for the rest of the show here. Alright, this is Mike and you're listening to Radio Orbit and uh, my guest Vincent Bridges. A very interesting man who we've been talking to for the last hour and a half and uh, let's just uh, continue right along with him. The website one more time for those if you're just joining us uh, if you're just joining us, first of all, you missed uh, an amazing hour and a half of uh, uh, information and conversation from Vincent Bridges, and you'll have to check out the website in the next uh, day, day and a half or so at RadioOrbit.com and download uh, this show uh, or stream it, and it doesn't cost you anything. I make all this stuff available to people. They can listen to them and download them uh, for free. So uh, just go to the website and get a load of it and share it with your friends because it's amazing stuff that we've been talking about tonight and uh, certainly relevant to the current situation uh, on uh, on Planet 3. So anyway, all right, Vincent, uh, we, we were talking before the break uh, just sort of alluding to this, this sort of change of ages that uh, seems to be upon us and it's been talked about at great length uh, by our ancestors and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about it uh, about it now. Yeah, the shift in the zodiacal age, which is the period uh, that the spring equinox stays in a particular zodiacal sign, that 2,000-plus year period, has always been seen as having a very specific quality. We're fortunate in some ways and kind of unfortunate in others in the West that our, that our zodiac really didn't take shape in the way we have it now and the way we understand it now until the Roman times. The Greeks had a very different view. They understood the zodiac, the path of the animals, but, but they viewed uh, the larger sphere of the northern hemisphere's constellations as being of equal value, and they had qualities. It was the Romans that, that put everything into a zodiac and, and began astrology, mm. as we would think of it. And, and when they did that, they, they began to align a few things. And, and one of the things that they noted at about the same time this was taking shape is that they were moving from the spring equinox being in Aries to the spring equinox being in Pisces. Now, procession, the procession of the equinox, this backward movement against the starry, unmoving stars background, uh, had been known to the Greeks, and, had been known, and they learned it from the Egyptians, and it probably even the Babylonians had some clue of it. And when the, when the Romans began to understand that this was a process, then they began to um, sort of create an iconographic representation of the shift between the ages. And we can see this in the shift uh, in the Roman uh, idea of, of from the Republic to the Empire, and even more importantly, on a, on a 
backward viewing level, mm-hmm. we can see the shift from paganism to Christianity. Hmm. We even date our, our our world for the shift in the ages between Aries and, and Pisces. Now, 2,000-some-odd years later, we supposedly have the shift from Pisces to Aquarius. Now, the problem is, in the sky, Pisces is a very long constellation. And only if you divide them roughly using some arbitrary or otherwise defined dividing point and divide them into 12 equal sections, do you have a age of Aquarius beginning at the appropriate time period after an age of Pisces? In the sky, we're going to be in Pisces for a while. Now, the ancients seems to have solved this by not even trying to figure where the shift between Pisces and Aquarius were. They knew that that area was important, but it was almost as important for its void and its nebulous quality hmm. as it was for sharply defined quality. Okay. On the opposite side of the zodiac, you have a very sharply defined, with many stars to draw straight lines and count from, boundary between Virgo and Leo. Now, this dividing line between Virgo and Leo, when it fell 13,000 or so years ago mm-hmm. on the spring equinox, became the major defining point in when you determine both a zodiacal age, the 2,000-year each segment of the 12, assuming you had 12 in the Roman view you did. Mm-hmm. That's the defining point for the larger scale over 13,000 years of whether the whole tilt of the Earth's orbit is tilted in toward the center of the galaxy or out away from the center of the galaxy. Okay. 13,000 years ago, we were tilted toward the center of the galaxy. Okay? 13,000 years later, now we're tilted away from the center of the galaxy. And over that 13,000 years, we'll slowly tilt back toward the center and then tilt out again. Okay. Now, that 26,000-year period, roughly, is the great platonic year, the great year of procession. Hmm. The time it takes any equinox, the vernal or, or autumnal equinox, to go this whole 360 degrees of the zodiacal circle Throughout the and come back to the same place. Okay. Right. Okay. And these two larger seasons can then be subdivided to give the processional year the same four seasons that we find down here on Earth. That as above, so below synchronicity. And they're and they're all, but these seasons are five thousand some odd years. Well, six thousand years, uh, roughly six thousand years in between each segment. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, sixty two hundred or something like right. that. Whatever. Okay, okay, okay. And so, we, as we move through summer, fall, winter, spring, in a galactic sense, that's also mirrored every year on a local solar sense. Hmm. And again, there are also very interesting uh, tilts. The way we're tilted against the, the galactic plane by 60 degrees means that at some locations, the sacred 30-degree latitude, both north and south, the sky it appears to stand straight up. Right, the right. galactic meridian is straight above here. Very interesting. And again, that's traditionally been where all the sacred sites are, Giza, mm. the Jed, all of that. Right along that. that parallel. Right. So these larger seasons, the great year, are divided into months, and the months are the three zodiacal ages within each season. So the shifts between the months within the season are so profound, as I said, that it, we now mark you know, the, the last major shift as BCAD. But not only are we shifting between one age and another, we're shifting from one mode of relating to the galaxy mm-hmm. to another. Mm-hmm. 
We've come to the extreme extension of being away, tilted away from the galaxy, and now we're slowly beginning to move back towards tilting in the direction of the galactic center. And this means that we're at that point, we're at that midwinter point Hmm. in the season of the universe. So the midwinter point, December 21st, 22nd, 2012, marks that alignment both in the sky and on the planet. Amazing. And again, we're marking that time period somewhere between 1992 and 2012. Right, that period. said it was the fall equinox 2002, and that was literally the moment in which all of the portents that he described lined up, specifically if you were at the Great Pyramid, so that you had Saturn you know, on the torch of Orion just above the pyramids in perfect alignment, moon in Virgo, crescent moon in Virgo to the west, the sun rising in the east, perfect alignment with the cube of space that was being formed at that moment. Amazing. Now, that 2012 moment, it it continues every equinox, and it's been roughly in alignment every equinox from 1992 to 2012. 2002 was the point at which it went, clink, exact. (laughs) But still, it's so close as it's having its effect. Again, as we're moving towards that culmination point, it's not just the change of an age. We're going through that, mm-hmm. but we're going through the whole change of galactic seasons. Right. right, and again, these things aren't, aren't specifically defined boundaries. They sort of fade in and fade out, and there, are, and, there are, and there are high points in between. Right, and when you're talking about a 13,000-year period, roughly, and again, the procession that, that we're marking is traditionally counted as one specific number, but it has changed over time. So, our, you know, if, if we're a year or two off, if Nostradamus says 1991 and it's actually 2001, right. give him some latitude, right? Right, yeah, no doubt. If we're talking about big big frames of time. Big here. frames of time in which, you know, if you get it within a year or two, you're really doing well mm-hmm. with those kind of instruments. Mm-hmm. And um, we're definitely within within a, uh, the range of, of, of error that, that makes it, hmm, right. very interesting. Amazing. So we're going through... This huge shift in season. We've gotten as far into the Iron Age, into the era of blind materialism, this idea of control, we were saying, as it's possible to go. Mm. And for the past 800 years or so, we've been given these markers. Uh, again, very courageous people have risked being burned at the stake to stand up and say, now look, you know, this Christianity, this control trip, you know, this emphasis on a very dark and bleak end of the world, you know, maybe that's not, you know, and as these ideas have percolated and and sort of flowed through the undercurrent of of human collective unconsciousness, fairly amazing things have emerged. (laughs) One of those amazing things is America. At the moment, yeah, we're part of the problem, not part of the solution. (laughs) But the ideal is there. The energy can still be tapped. I agree. This nation was created by people who were occultists. If you took George Washington out of the Alexandria 22 Masonic Lodge in Alexandria, Virginia, and you plopped him down in the middle of a Golden Dawn Temple circa 1898 in London, doing you know, high-brow ceremonial magician, magical stuff, he would understand it perfectly. Yep, he would be able to fall into it perfectly. Right, perfectly at home. And it's that sort of similar tradition. I mentioned the Golden Dawn because 
inherently the Golden Dawn's tradition of how you arrange the Trump, the Trump Senator Rodak and give them attributions. The same arrangement that Fulconella used to arrange the pictures and images that he pulled out of Notre Dame to produce the pattern in Mystery of the Cathedral. Very interesting. So there's there, there's interconnections at, right. at many levels. The point being is that this is a very long, ongoing plan mm. to sort of help us get through it, or if we can't get through it, to at least ensure that something survives. Well, it is absolutely fascinating, and, and you know, it would be less so if if current events and the world around us didn't sort of uh, reflect exactly what we're seeing, especially with hindsight now. Uh, I mean, it's becoming more and more obvious that business right. as usual is sort of uh, no longer an option, you know? Well, it's sort of curious. Most folks who write a book that talk about a specific date being a marker for the end of the world... When that date passes, their book is like, you know, gone. Don't see it anymore. Don't hear about it anymore. We wrote two versions uh, of this book, the early two versions of Monument, before the date. And they sold all right, but not great. Mm. Since 2012, um, I, I can't keep Amazon stocked with Monument. Or 2002, yeah. Yeah, since 2002. Uh, and, and Mysteries is selling all around the planet. I have fans in Australia, you know. Mm. It's sort of like we got it right on some level. Unfortunately, perhaps, we got it right. Mm. But we did apparently get it right. And uh, while that isn't exactly you know, a pleasant thing to contemplate, perhaps just getting it right indicates that, well, there is a thread. Mm. You know, there is a, a bit yeah. of hope here. I'll tell you what. Let's. Uh, I think that's a good way to sort of maybe close out. Let's talk about this for a few minutes. I've, I've been thinking... Uh, during the night as we've been talking about alchemy something comes to mind there's this concept uh, and they used like a bastardized Latin sort of to represent it but they called it the Negredo and the Albedo and so the the Negredo was what you started with the material that was uh, that which would be eventually transformed and and it was and it was Represented as not being pleasant, you know, the crap, the That's right. crapola, you know. You took your prime material and and you literally let it rot, you mm. let it decompose, right? Let it go through the negrito state, and and then you got to, and and then you work towards this other thing, this the the albedo, the whitening. So maybe you could expand on that a little bit and talk about, because I think that is sort of a hopeful way to look at things, because we are sort of in the in the crapola time, uh, and and maybe that this is the this is the prima materia of our own world that we can, if we're lucky, do it right and morph at least some of it into something really nice. Well, curiously enough, when Fulconelli talks about this, he refers to the, the science of the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew is one of the few places that Jesus actually gives us a little bit of processional insight. And the basic thing that he talks about there. It's the idea of the cornerstone that the builders rejected. If you see the process as simply the negrito, simply the fact that society is falling apart, you know, my God, we do have refugees in America, you know, the, the, the terrorists are after us. If you simply focus on that, then you've rejected the stone itself, the philosopher's stone. Only if you embrace the fact that these... Uh, Ancient ways, you know, the, the, the destruction of the past, 
only if you embrace the fact that that has to go, you have to release it, have to let that go, do you actually find that there is something of value. The refining methods that are talked about once you have that decomposing mass are metaphors for what everyone goes through in their soul. As we experience the tribulations over the next seven years, we're going to be in, Pulcanelli says, the refining fire. And only that which is pure, only that which is of the albedo, and again, that's white, but Negrito absorbs all light in order to facilitate the transition. Black absorbs. White reflects and transmits. So you have to absorb all the light that's coming in from, from the center of the galaxy and all the changes. We have to say, okay, this is the way it is. We have to embrace it. And then out of that, as we refine it, we'll, we'll come the ability to reflect back out the light from the center of the galaxy. Wow. There's a marvelous part that um, uh, we I really didn't get to translate well into mysteries because of space in Monument about the Sufi Surah, Light Upon Light. Yeah, yeah. And that's specifically what Muhammad was talking about, is that the quality of light, quality of time is changing, and it cre- creates changes in us, that first transmutation. Mm-hmm. And then as we change, we're able to reflect that light out so that we are like a lamp in a niche mm-hmm. glowing from this miraculous oil, mm-hmm. you know, this brain chemistry, this DMT-like substance, wow. if you will, wow. that produces the light upon light, the light of neither the east or the west, the black or the white. Wow, that's amazing that you bring this up at, at the, at the at this point in the program, but, you know, I'm I'm reminded now again of, you mentioned DMT, I'm reminded of the pineal or the pineal gland, and, and again, in the middle between the two hemispheres and between the two eyes, the sort of central eye. Oh, yes, and, and there, there are many, many connections. Oh, you man. had, uh, God, we should talk about uh, Jeremy we... Narby on uh, a week or so ago. I did, yeah. And uh, there's so many connections between the alchemical green language, the coded language, mm. And what we think of as the codes in DNA, and again, what we think of as the codes in the I Ching. Yeah. Um, I Ching is a great lifelong study of mine. And pretty much everything we've been talking about, including these galactic seasonal alignments, can be found in the I Ching mm-hmm. and the discussions mm-hmm. about the I Ching. Going all the way back to, again, you know, <laughs> a couple of thousand years ago. Right. And, uh, this is the core of the ancient wisdom that we've been bequeathed from the culture that died 13,000 years ago. And somehow, if we really want to survive, we have to kind of live up to it, kind of, kind of get with it in, in a basic sense. And part of that is the transformation. Part of that is being able to let the faults fall away and live through this refiner's fire come out on the other end able to reflect the light that, that, that we've been absorbing. Yeah, you know, the the, uh, the metaphor of, of trial by fire, you know, is something that is, again, that has a really a, a long tradition. And in fact, it's, it, it's, it's physical as well. It's the way that we harden steel, for example, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, no, no small thing. And without fire, we wouldn't have any of the advanced arts. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's the core of alchemy, is working with metals Mm. and working with the spirit of metals and so forth. Mm. Practical alchemy on that level, we could have 
many discussions about the magical uses of metals and so forth. That's the lower alchemy along with plant alchemy. What we've been talking about tonight is that real inner core, the understanding that was very hard to come by. You had to find a master that understood it, and then, you know, maybe if you were lucky, before he died, he would explain it to you. Amazing. And the fact that we've had to reconstruct it in our modern world, it's not surprising given all that. What is surprising is that adepts, like Fulconelli, whoever he was, managed to survive, managed to recreate the current, enough to give us some really good clues to go by. Wow. Well, my gosh, and, 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 the, and the story uh, just with uh, the, the way you and Jay came upon it is, is an amazing story in and of itself, uh, the, the synchronicities involved in the whole, in the whole, uh, the whole adventure. Oh, take a, talk about a leaf of, of faith. Okay, we're my. going to Peru now. <laughs> okay, we're going to Egypt. Oh, right. yeah, We've got to go to, to Tibet now. Right. You know. Yeah, there was... I, um, you took a look at that. There was that, that video uh, from the caves there in Peru. Very interesting. Very cool, huh? I really have no doubt that the Peru connection involves those, for want of a better word, advanced beings who survived the last catastrophe. Amazing. Well, I'll, I'm not I'll, really sure it's where we should be for the next one because I think it's a different kind of catastrophe, right, right. different world. But um, there is something about that whole Peru connection that is very powerful. All right. Well, I'll... I'll uh, I'll put a link up to that uh, to that video too, so people will know what the heck we're talking oh, about. Oh yeah, but, that's a very good one. Yeah. All right, well look, uh, we are about at the end of it here. Unfortunately, we could talk for a long, long time. I have a feeling, uh, which means we'll probably have to do it again if you'd uh, be gentleman enough to uh, to do it. Oh, certainly, um, anytime. All right, well, great. And uh, in the meantime, uh, for everybody, uh, this has been Vincent Bridges, and you can. Uh, you can check out Vincent and all of his material at www.vincentbridges.com. And uh, one more time, Vincent, the new website? TheGoddessColumbia.com. And as it goes up, there will be a link on, a link on VincentBridges.com, so it, it will be available. I think the universe is now allowing the information to get out since we were able to get it out on the radio tonight without any disasters. Wow, amazing. So, so I think in the next day or so it will be up. Yep. Okay. Well, great. The timing, <laughs> interesting. The timing, no pun intended, looks like it's perfect. So, Amen. So we'll do it. All right. Uh, all right. Well, look, uh, thanks. I can't tell you how much. It's late. Oh, you're we, quite welcome. Yeah, we've been talking with Vincent, and he's, he's actually in the hills of North Carolina, if I'm, if I'm correct, and it's uh, an hour Witch haunted you worries, we say. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> and it's an hour later there than it is here, so he's been great to stick around late into the evening with, uh, with us. So... Uh, so one more time, thanks very much, Vincent. We've appreciated it, and it's been amazing, and uh can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Vincent Bridges, amazing, amazing stuff, uh, and uh, we'll do our best to talk to Vincent again in the future. Okay, we're going to finish things up here, a little bit of cross-eyed stuff closer to the end, and I'll be back at you next week. And I think we're just going to do an open line show because uh, I'll be going to Massachusetts in a couple of days after that to do the Bioneers Conference and uh, talk to you guys about that. So, anyway, thanks again, and stick around for the Boogeyman. Curtis coming up in just a few minutes, and we will finish up with, uh, as I said, this is uh, my friends from Cross-Eyed. This song is called Closer to the End, a fitting uh, end to this program. Thanks again to Vincent. See you next week.
Every step forward is closer to the end. Every step forward. 